Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Dr Ingrid Medby is a lecturer in human geography at Newcastle University. Ingrid studies Arctic geopolitics and is particularly interested in statecraft and the changing environment of the far north. The Arctic is a rapidly changing environment as summer sea ice extent is currently shrinking by 12.6% every decade. Due to global warming, it's one of the fastest changing areas on the planet, with a continued loss of sea ice, melting permafrost, the release of stored carbon, and a growing impact on sensitive high Arctic vegetation. This landscape is becoming more accessible to the Arctic nations of the world, and this has led to an increase in industrial and economic activity. Ingrid once said to me that the Arctic is now being re-imaged and reassessed in the light of a much more complex geopolitical situation. And today we're here to bring you up to speed on the latest political developments from the North. Ingrid, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me and for inviting me to speak about my favourite topic. And this is our second podcast with you, I believe. We were just talking off air. Yes, it is. Yeah, so I'm delighted to be back. Great. Well, you hear a lot of terms about the Arctic in, in general discourse. How would you define it? So unfortunately, there isn't just one single definition of the Arctic region. It depends on where you stand and where you're coming from, in particular, your, your disciplinary background and your interests. So the most common definition of the Arctic will probably be the Arctic Circle, which is roughly 66 degrees north. Um, this is where the sun doesn't set at uh, mid- midsummer and where the sun does not rise above the horizon midwinter. Um, but other definitions that are used by, by the sciences might include the 10 degree July isotherm, um, which is where the average temperature of the warmest month is less than 10 degrees Celsius, or the tree line, for example. But as a political geographer, I would probably use the Arctic Circle, and that's what we see used mostly in political discourse. And of course, we're talking about governance today, so that's probably the most most relevant one. I'm reflecting back on my introduction already uh, and realising that I've used different terms, the far north, the Arctic, um, and I know there's other terms like the high north, the Arctic Council, the Arctic nations that we're going to touch upon in this conversation. Yeah, de- definitely. And um, perhaps just pick up on that there, you mentioned the Arctic Council and the Arctic Council is the most, I would say, important intergovernmental forum in the Arctic region and it's where the Arctic states meet. And this is another important definition for you. So there are eight Arctic states and these are the countries that have territory north of the Arctic Circle and are the members of the, the Arctic Council. So actually there isn't a formal definition of Arctic states, but they are the, the founding members of the Arctic Council. So they meet in the Arctic Council. The Council doesn't have any decision-making powers, but this is a forum where, where these states meet and uh, they have that title of Arctic state. So even though you might live in Oslo or Stockholm or even Florida, you would be a citizen of an Arctic country, interestingly. Yeah. That's so interesting. And are those eight countries the only stakeholders in the region? No, I wouldn't say so. I think there are a lot of, if you want to call them stakeholders, a lot of countries and, and people most importantly interested in the region. But I think when we talk about stakeholders, first and foremost, we, we have to talk about the people living in the Arctic. So again, depending a little bit on your definition, there's roughly 4 million people living north of the Arctic Circle. And among those, about 10% are indigenous peoples. So 
These people live across the eight Arctic states that I just mentioned, and they are represented there through the through the governments. And there are also six indigenous peoples organizations represented as permanent participants in the Arctic Council. So these are really important stakeholders, if you will. I think in addition to that, though, we should also recognize that a lot of other people and countries around the world have an interest in the Arctic, not least because of the, the climatic changes that are happening there that will also influence countries and places elsewhere. So again, to return to the Arctic Council, there are a lot of non-Arctic states and organizations that are represented there as well as observers. So they participate in meetings, but they also contribute to, for example, science. And of course, there are also economic interests there. So it's difficult to define stakeholders, but I do think that when we talk about the Arctic, we have to start with the people living there. And would examples of some of those people be the Inuits in North America? And we've done a project on the Nenets in the Arctic Circle in Russia. Is that correct? Yeah, and they're great examples. And there are, of course, many more peoples. So as I mentioned, there are six Indigenous people organisations represented in the Arctic Council, but they represent a lot more than just six peoples. So for example, the Russian Association of Indigenous Peoples of the North, they represent 40 Indigenous peoples. So there's a lot there. And um, I think it's worth mentioning that here in Europe, we have the Sami people and they live across the states, Norway, Sweden, Finland and Russia. And they have had to endure state policies being imposed on them when they would traditionally have lived across those, those borders and to an extent still do. And on top of those stakeholders and some of the people that we've mentioned, um, strangely, there are countries that do not have Arctic territory, but still attend Arctic Council meetings. Um, Why is that? Yeah, so they will be there as observers. And of course, as I mentioned at at the beginning, the Arctic is of interest to a lot of people in a lot of countries and a lot of stakeholders, if you will, across the world. And that is first and foremost because of climate change. And so we can think about how climate change impacts countries elsewhere. So they will have an interest in what happens in the Arctic to know what might come their way and how they will be influenced. But also they contribute to science. And I think the UK is an example where we have a lot of fantastic glaciologists and climate scientists here in the UK who also contribute to Arctic research. So there is that interest. But then in addition, there are economic interests. There is interest in whether there might be new shipping routes becoming um, available or possible, economically viable. To an extent, we're seeing a bit more transport and, and travel in the Arctic, including actually tourism. And here, again, is a good example of where people from far south of the Arctic Circle have a, have a real interest in the Arctic, even just to visit it. And you've mentioned tourism and the opening up of, of new shipping routes. Um, what are the new opportunities and potential threats around the Arctic? So I think both opportunities and, and threats, they both sort of the starting point for both of those will be climate change. So with opportunities, people might be thinking about uh, resources becoming available. So renewable as well as non-renewable resources, energy resources, minerals, and so on. The other, the other big topic, I think, is, uh, is shipping and whether it becomes, if it makes sense economically to, to use transport routes in the Arctic. So there's the, the Northwest Passage in the sort of Canadian north or the, the Northern Sea Route along Russia's coastline. And um, they might not yet make economic sense, but certainly there is interest there in, in the developments and what might become possible or feasible in the future. And this is the domain of not only states, but also companies and, and 
insurers, people developing new technologies. There's a lot of things that has to be in place for, for these shipping routes to really become commonly used. But we are seeing an increase in uh, both usage, but also interest. And I think I'm very interested in how the ideas of the Arctic future, so what people think might become possible in the future, how that is influencing investments and politics today. New threats are very much connected to those opportunities that I just outlined as well. So, for example, threats of unsustainable economic activities, even if the intention is good, um, that also relates to social engagement with local communities, for example, threat of increased pollution from shipping and tourism, risks of of spread of conflicts elsewhere to the north. Um, So I think with the region warming so much faster than the rest of the world, a lot of the threats that we will all experience in the future with with climate change are are already happening there. So land erosion, for example, that means that whole communities have had to relocate and food scarcity for livestock, such as reindeer and so on. So it comes back to climate change again, really, which is the the driver for all of this and the the challenge that we we have to address first and, and foremost. And on this Northern Sea uh, shipping route, am I right in thinking that that route is opening up over Eurasia for ships? and the transport of shipping containers, which would speed up uh, transport times from where things are produced, largely in East Asia, to the market, as opposed to boats coming round through the Indian Ocean and then up through the Suez Canal. Yeah, that's certainly the the hope for some, and uh, that's where the interest lies. I think still much of the shipping along the the Northern Sea Route is still Russian sort of domestic shipping, but but yes, um, countries like China certainly have an interest in seeing how how that develops. Uh, Russia is clearly a, a major player in the region. Has it always engaged in Arctic geography? Yeah, so the Arctic is hugely important for Russia, not only for for its economy and, and resources, but also for its identity. So the, the North has always featured in Russia's identity, and President Putin has talked about this as well. Further back in, in history, Russia had um, explorers traveling the high North, learning more about it, um, and it's gained economically a lot from resources there. And I already mentioned the Russian Association of Indigenous Peoples in the North. So there's a lot of people living there. I think it's about um, a quarter of a million Indigenous peoples. Or at least I think that's what the organization represents. And they live across the, the Russian high north. Um, when we talk about the, the Arctic and, and the Arctic Ocean in particular, over 50% of that coastline is is Russia's. So yes, of, of course, it's hugely important both to to Russia as its uh, sense of itself as well as, uh, as the geography. And bringing our conversation up to the, the 21st century to into 2023, um, how has the invasion of Ukraine influenced Arctic geopolitics? Well, the most obvious one will be that the Arctic Council has paused its activities. This was one of the quite unique fora where the countries such as the USA and Russia and Canada would sit around the same table and, and cooperate on, on Arctic issues. But since the invasion in 2022, that has not taken place. And uh, Russia currently holds the chairship of the Arctic Council. So again, a lot of activities that would otherwise have taken place haven't. On the 11th of May this year, Norway takes over that chairship. And we also saw last summer that some of the activities without Russian partners also 
were able to start up again. So there's limited activity, but I think there's a desire for it to continue. The Arctic Council has done some fantastic work over the years, but that just isn't possible with the, in the current geopolitical climate. So that's the, the biggest and most obvious thing that we can see in terms of Arctic geopolitics. But of course, it influences everything. As I said, Russia holds over 50% of the Arctic coastline. So it's very difficult to talk about anything in the Arctic without including Russia. Certainly when it comes to climate change and, and the research on that, it's it's really a big challenge now. And, and you talked about threats earlier. It's a threat to the to scientific knowledge as well that we are missing data now um, for those kind of long-term projects and the kinds of collaborations that have been built between scientists as well over, over many years is suffering from this. So finally... In terms of how the invasion of Ukraine has influenced Arctic geopolitics, just to touch on my own research a little bit, before the invasion, I was doing work in the Norwegian high north in the so-called Barents region. And this is where Norway, Sweden, Finland and Russia meet. And for nearly 30 years, there's now been uh, something called the Barents Cooperation, which is an initiative set up to to encourage people-to-people cooperation. So they would provide some funding for, for example, school uh, exchanges, uh, choirs, sports teams and so on to to cross the former Iron Curtain for people to meet and make friendships, um, do projects together and so on. And this was a really uh, positive, a really successful initiative. And I remember writing about the things that they had achieved. And then only a few months after I finished that project, the invasion happened. And so all of that work that had been taking place in the Barents region was also put on hold. And a lot of those friendships that had been built, that that contact was suddenly not possible anymore. So I think that's a really important way to say that the biggest influence that the invasion of Ukraine has had is on people and, and everyday people's lives. And what are the Arctic challenges for the 21st century? The main challenge in the Arctic for the 21st century is the same as the main global challenge, I would say. It's the climate emergency. How this is dealt with and responded in this century is the the main question that is facing us. These dramatic environmental changes are also economic, they're societal, they're cultural and they're political as well. So this is, I think, both an easy and an impossible question that I guess the challenge is what we do about the climate and that itself is a hundred other questions and how that will play out. But what that will mean to be in the Arctic, I think there's no no simple answer to that, but a lot depends on what we do ourselves. And my follow-up question was partly going to touch upon that, um, which is what will it mean to be Arctic in the future, potentially without sea ice? Yeah, I was thinking about that as well as I was talking, because some of my work has, has looked at Arctic identity and I think so there isn't there isn't a simple answer to what it means to be Arctic today either. I think there's a multitudes of different ways to answer that and it's very contextual, it's very individual, it depends on on where you are, when you're and who you're speaking to. But certainly I think it will matter that the environment is changing, that the landscape is changing. We're already seeing that some of the activities and some of the livelihoods that people have had in the high north becoming increasingly difficult or or even impossible. So Yes, it will be influenced by climate change, but on a more hopeful note, I think there is still so much yet to be determined and decided about how climate change plays out. And so I think there is still scope for us to to really think about what it means to be Arctic and what that will mean as we as we go forward. And what future governance do you foresee for the region? And what will the impact be on geopolitics, 
as climate change continues? It's hard to say, as we're still waiting to find out what the future of the Arctic Council will be. So, as I said, the Arctic Council is, they don't make decisions, but it is a forum where states meet, and it has had a really positive influence in the way that a lot of common challenges have been determined across these eight states rather than individually. So it it has been hugely important and we will need that kind of forum in the future as well. So we will see what happens. I think optimistically, I, I hope that the future governance in the region will include an even stronger or even stronger international cooperation and um that is also what the Arctic Council has articulated is their, their plan um, and that there will be a, an even stronger voice for indigenous peoples and Arctic inhabitants in the, in the future governance of the region. More pessimistically, we have a long way to go before the Arctic Council can be resumed. And unfortunately, Arctic governance will be so dependent on geopolitics elsewhere, especially at the moment in, in Russia and Ukraine. And will there need to be governance around uh, industry, such as for fishing fleets um, in the Arctic, and perhaps a security element as well? Yeah, so there's already some agreements in place around fishery. And of course, the fishery that takes place off uh, countries' coast is managed by them and some bilaterally as well. And this is also an area where there has been some really good examples in the past of how, for example, Norway and Russia have collaborated on on fishery in the, in the Barents region. But certainly this is something that will need more discussions and more decisions made, more collaboration, I think. I think I'm, I keep coming back to the question of cooperation, but it's so crucial in something like marine resources that don't respect borders. Really, you can't have any individual state or even economic actors deciding that on their own, but stakeholders have to come together. And that includes companies. I don't think states can make decisions in a, in a vacuum either or in isolation either but they certainly can have a voice in terms of making sure that not everything is decided based on economic interests but also the interests of the people living there. And with melting sea ice and disappearing glaciers do those instances or does the occurrence equal new borders and ultimately a reopening of old tensions between old rivals? Um, the short answer to that is is no, I don't think so. There is nothing predetermined about climate change and sea ice, as you said, um, and what it will mean for political relations. There's nothing inevitable about changing land or landscapes leading to new claims or, or rivalries reopening and so on. But that being said, environmental changes are also political and societal. So I, I would expect that some of these relations might change too. But if that is for the better or worse, that I don't think that will be determined by the presence or absence of ice and, and the climate change in and of itself, but rather by governments, decision makers and, and people ultimately. So I think that is really one of the main messages that I would like to get across is that even though the Arctic is changing and it's changing due to human activities, and it is our responsibility to act on that, what exactly these changes will mean for, for people and for, for peace, I still think that is up for us all to decide. That's a relatively positive message to finish on. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ingrid. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. 
School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.